0: Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Centre for Consciousness and
1: Contemplative Studies. I am Beth. And I am Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience and psychology, while occasionally talking about our own personal experiences. And this week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Julian Scheffer,
0: who's a postdoc at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's about to start an assistant professorship at the University of Western in Ontario. He looks at compassion and empathy. So we spoke about his research to do with that. We spoke about what are the differences between compassion and empathy? What are the cognitive costs of being compassionate? Um, We looked at how we rate our own compassion and how people receive empathy when we direct empathy towards them.
2: I'm Julian Sheffer. I'm currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, working with Dr. Robert Levinson, I previously did my PhD at Penn State University under the mentorship of Dr. Daryl Cameron, um, and I'm about to transition actually in August 2024 to an assistant professorship position at the University of Western in Ontario. Much of my research is focused on the utility of what I often refer to as social emotions or moral emotions like empathy and compassion. I'm trying to focus on when these sort of emotional processes work for us, when they may be things that we may actually seek to avoid, how they may lead to more benevolent and good acts of behavior, and when they may actually hinder our ability to do good. Um, and additionally, how it actually feels for the recipients of some of those uh, emotional processes as well. So that's broadly what I focus on, and I've been working on questions in this literature for a number of years. Uh, but broadly, that's who I am, and that's what I'm up to.
0: Awesome. So we hear the terms compassion and empathy a lot, and I guess it can be confusing to how, first of all, they are different and what compassion actually is. So would you be able to define what compassion is and explain how that's different to empathy?
2: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I will do my best to sort of stating up front that there's quite a lot of debate in this literature. So I've come to understand compassion as a sort of warm, tender concerned response for another individual it's often described as akin to a parent who tends to a crying child and more recently i've started to understand that this is also based in what can be referred to as the acceptance of universal suffering and in a non-judgmental manner wanting to help another person improving their welfare broadly or maybe alleviating their suffering so that's often what compassion may be referred to as empathy is a little bit more complicated, and I'll step back a a second here just to say that I've also come to understand empathy as potentially having these three component parts. The first being experience sharing. Uh, This is sort of sharing in the feelings and experiences of another person, often taking them on as if they are your own. The second being perspective taking, and this is often referred to as putting yourself into the shoes of another person, trying to understand how they got to their current emotional or mental state. And the last one is prosocial concern, but also is kind of similar to compassion. And this is that sort of feeling a concern for another individual often paired with a motivation to want to improve their welfare. And so this is where the debate sort of gets a little interesting in that compassion is often considered part of an empathic emotional state or process. But there is some debate as to whether these may actually be separated in their nature in order to achieve what's referred to as like a pro-social motivation or pro-social behavior. So if I step a little further, some researchers have started to sort of constrain empathy more towards that experience sharing component. Just the process of sharing in another person's emotional experience and saying that that actually may come with an inherent cost when you try to do that. Especially when another person may be in distress, that actually might cause you to feel distress yourself and may want to exit a situation where you're actually trying to help another person or maybe see someone in distress. Whereas you can actually potentially go towards compassion as the first pass and you can actually start to sort of feel for another individual, um, you know, feel for their suffering in ways that you feel a little bit more emotionally detached from it, but in a way that you can generate that concern and potentially pair that with the motivation to want to help them out. And so, you know, there's a lot of debates about this. And there's also paired with how lay individuals will define these concepts and put them into practice. But I've sort of been in the middle of trying to tease these apart, both in terms of would people be able to experience these naturally? How do people define them? And how can we actually put them into practice, especially when we're making those recommendations at the public policy or even in the workplace setting?
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, so I think we hear a lot about how compassion is better than empathy in terms of wanting to help others. Do you have an opinion on that? Do you agree with that? Do you think we should try and be more compassionate than we are empathetic?
2: That's a great question. And, you know, I'm actually thinking about one, a lot of the research has been done so far and a lot of the conflicting findings and some recent work that I think has come out. And I'll, I'll cite the research just because they just put out a preprint of this. So it's very timely. I think it's a group of Toronto folks, so Greg DePau, uh, working with his grad advisor, Michael Ingslicht, former grad student over there, who I actually know very well, Nicholas Hobson, and worked with some industry partners and workplace individuals. And I believe that they found that, you know, in that context, compassion was actually a little bit more effective for leaders than the empathy or sharing components. So that's some preliminary evidence there that may suggest that compassion may be a little bit more effective when you go straight to that type of approach. Now, Again, they've done a a certain way of operationalizing those variables in order to study them in that context. But if I were to sort of step back and be a little bit more broader on how I think about these processes, it, it does strike me a little bit hard to have compassion without maybe having that experience sharing component as well. So if you are trying to generate compassion for another individual without maybe trying to understand their emotional state, how they got there maybe try to share in what they're going through and understand maybe the limits of where you can share what they're going through. Part, part of my understanding is that I might have a little bit of concern about someone trying to generate that sort of, you know, desire to help another person without trying to understand how they got there, let alone whether you can actually share in their experience. So I think there's, there's a little bit of a debate there in the global recommendation front of what we should be doing. But I think both together may be more effective than maybe one or the other.
0: So we kind of talk about people who are naturally empathetic, more empathetic than others. Do you know if there's a gene or something that makes people more empathetic or is there something going on that why some people are more than others and yet is this a a good thing?
2: Yeah. In terms of a natural inclination to be more empathetic. So I think the way I can contextualize that question is that I've been thinking about this in the domain of what are people's. I guess, abilities to have empathy or to empathize and what are people's propensities or inclinations to empathize. And I think a lot of this comes out of a a sort of a, it's sort of a theory or perspective paper. It was in Trends in Cognitive Science, I believe, by Kaisers and Gazola. So that was, this is a really interesting paper that talked about, you know, certain individuals maybe sort of have a certain ability-based limitation on whether they're actually able to empathize or We might think that people have certain limitations in their ability to empathize when they actually do have the ability. It's just that their propensity or their inclination to empathize might actually be lower. And there may be ways that we can sort of boost up that propensity or even tune it down depending on different contextual factors. So in terms of the gene question, I think it does get a little complicated. I, I also do think that there's certain individuals who may be more likely to put themselves in empathetic situations versus not or maybe individuals that face more empathetic situations that actually cause them to have to downregulate. And, you know, we think about healthcare Mm -hmm. professionals, doctors, therapists, you know, I'm doing some research that I'm happy to talk about, about informal caregiving and how that relates to, you know, the decision to want to empathize with a loved one who is going through a particularly difficult neurodegenerative disease. So I think that a lot of the sort of uh, maybe biological nature of empathy is very complex uh, to the point that, It would be really hard i think to tease that down to either a single gene a single functional neural region or maybe something to do with biomarkers
0: your 2021 study investigated the cognitive cost of compassion can you explain this experiment and how you could test the cognitive cost of compassion
2: yeah absolutely Uh, i should mention that this research was actually a follow-up on some earlier work led by my graduate advisor which i was a part of in which he looked at the cognitive costs of empathy and in particular, we were looking at in that work was just seeing whether when people are given the opportunity to either sort of share in the experiences of other individuals uh, through empathy or soften that sort of experience sharing component or that emotional reaction towards another individual by sort of remaining objectively detached over numerous choices, what would people prefer to do? And would that associate with their perceptions of empathy versus the contrasts? as a sort of mentally demanding uh, aversive and sort of less efficacious and what we found in that work was that overall pretty robustly people preferred to avoid empathy and this was especially the case when they reported empathy as more mentally effortful aversive and less efficacious than the alternative and I will say that a lot of this work has been sort of based or adopted from mental effort and demand literature. So I should probably start off by defining what mental effort is. So I've come to understand mental effort as sort of increasing mental or physical energy applied when trying to meet a specific goal or outcome. And in the domain of mental effort literature, decades of work has shown that when giving people two courses of action that obtain a similar goal or outcome, people over time learn to avoid the one that requires more effort. And this is often referred to as the law of less work or less effort some exceptions. There's, you know, people like to enjoy furniture that they would prepare with their own hands, food that they prepare with their own hands as well. And people may actually approach things that are more effortful because they derive meaning and value in it. But for our purposes, especially even for the empathy work that I've mentioned, uh, we weren't quite clear whether people would have more mental effort when they're trying to approach an experience sharing component of empathy, as well as what they, they might derive meaning and value in it. So moving past the empathy work that was already conducted, we were sort of taking note of the debates about, you know, empathy and compassion. So as some folks are saying, empathy may actually be this exhausting, fatiguing, uh, you know, maybe parochial, it's sort of reserved for people that we like or that we know well. Maybe compassion is a more sustainable and rewarding emotional process on route to pro-social behavior. But what we wanted to do in our work is figure out, well, would people freely choose to engage in compassion when they're given the choice? And additionally, would they perceive mental effort and demand with its process when trying to sort of generate that? And so in in that work, what we did as a starter is we tried to give people multiple social targets, right? And these are strangers as a starting point and just gave them the choice. Do you want to generate sort of concern, compassionate care for another individual, or do you actually want to soften that response by remaining objectively detached? And what we found pretty strongly is that people actually prefer to avoid compassion, much like they were preferred to avoid empathy in prior work, as well as in our work, we compared those avoidance patterns and they were very similar. And people also similarly reported that compassion was also mentally effortful, aversive, and they felt less successful at it. So we did sort of find that from the get-go, people were actually still finding problems with compassion, much like empathy, especially when we boiled it down to prior definitional concepts that people have already laid out for us. So that was, I think, a note of caution to whether we can sort of generate compassion or want to generate compassion from the get-go.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. So one of the findings was, and let me know if I'm butchering this, no <laughs> the compassion was easier than empathy if the person was close to the person in need.
2: Yes, exactly. So, and I should have mentioned this earlier that we did a compassion versus empathy version of this kind of study and found that people actually preferred empathy over compassion, this is for strangers. And we found that this was especially the case when people found that compassion was less successful, they felt less efficacious at generating that compassion for a stranger compared to empathy. So as you mentioned with the sort of close other versus distant other research that we conducted, given that compassion is often construed as something that's potentially easier for parents sending it to a you know one of their children, we thought that maybe compassion might be something that we should study in terms of relational proximity. So we asked participants to basically input the name or initials of someone who they thought was more close to them, a family member, cousin, other loved one, and someone who was more distant to them. So an acquaintance, a coworker, but someone who they didn't have a lot of experience with. And we sort of piped those names in and just had our participants imagine those people Going through a mild suffering event, such as losing a $5 bill on the side of the street, stepping in, dog feces, started to be graphic. But, you know, we found that when we compared whether people were more or less likely to choose compassion for their close others versus their distant others, they actually chose it more for their close others. And this actually was paired with, we also asked participants to report how concerned they were for the individuals after choosing compassion or the alternative deck options, objective detachment in one study, and in another study, we also used empathy versus compassion. And we found that people were actually sort of reporting more concern when they chose compassion for their close others than the distant others, even though they chose compassion in both scenarios, right? So when we separated those trials out, people were actually more efficient at generating that concern for their close others. So we think that sort of highlights an unfortunate parochial nature of compassion, which you know, maybe optimal for us as individuals. But, you know, when we're trying to extend it to strangers, we don't know if that's effective and we don't know if we'll want to do it in the first place.
0: Another one of the findings was that when the plea for help was more enriched, participants wanted to feel compassion less. So what would be the reason for this? Because we would think it would be the opposite. We would think more. We would hear about the situation. We would probably want to feel compassion more. Why do you think that would be?
2: Yeah, that was a interesting study that we ran just to sort of try to apply our choice context in a different way. And in this particular study, people were choosing whether they wanted to in sort of two separate trials that they did within subjects. You you listen to a plea with a compassionate mindset and an objective mindset, so two separate trials, but you get to choose whether you want to continue listening to the plea under that compassionate mindset in that trial and under the objective mindset in that other trial. And what? one might expect is when you're doing the compassionate mindset, you might continue onwards. Whereas with the objective mindset, maybe you want to sort of remove yourself and just due to the reward pairing that's often associated with the compassionate mindset. What we found is actually people both across both trials wanted to sort of opt out of the sort of immersive plea. So even though it was more immersive in nature with the sort of audio format and sort of having someone talking to you, people found both sort of something that they didn't want to do. Reasoning why, I think there's a lot of different explanations that we could definitely test in follow-ups. It may have been that people felt like they couldn't sort of act on maybe what they were about to approach or feel. Maybe not having the ability to interact with the individual can sometimes impact whether you're going to be more inclined to do it or not. Whether people around you are watching are sort of important characteristics around why people might be more or less likely to do so. Uh, but I think in our approach here, we're really trying to remove all of those contextual factors just to see when we remove it, just when you're trying to experience the process itself, do you want to do it or not? And again, another cautionary tale against compassion uh, that people opted out of it.
0: That's really interesting because, I mean, we all, I think we would all think that if we want people to really understand an issue or where we're coming from, we should try and do this kind of enriched plea for help and explain it all. And I think it's really interesting that This found that the objective one was kind of the same.
1: One of the things that I was thinking about while listening to the interview was the question that you asked at the very beginning of what is the difference between empathy and compassion? And it seems like there is a lot of overlap, but that now from what I got from the, the interview was that where there might be agreement in terms of what empathy is versus compassion is that empathy definitely has this component of sharing another person's feelings and emotions. So really that emotion sharing aspect and feeling the same emotions as someone else. And then compassion, on the other hand, it seems there's this component of care that is not necessarily there with empathy. So when... Julian was describing the different results that they had found in their studies, asking people to show compassion versus showing empathy. I was kind of wondering what that was, again, because empathy has these separate components that includes feelings, emotions, and also putting yourself in someone's shoes, like the cognitive aspect of it, but maybe not so much that care part. And so I was just interested in looking at what exactly people were asked to do. I thought maybe... The listeners could also take this journey with us um, and think about like what you were actually being asked and think about if you can feel whether one is more effortful than the other. So these were the different trials and some conditions they were asked to feel empathy. And I think the condition was called feel and they were asked to do this. Look at the person in the picture and try to feel what this person feels. Share the suffering and experiences of this person and write one sentence describing these feelings. So then we'll go to the compassion one and maybe you can think, I don't know, think about me and Beth. (laughs) Think about trying to do this for me and (laughs) Beth. Our voices inside of the picture. This was the compassion prompt. Look at the person in the picture and try to feel compassion for this person. Generate warm feelings and caring for this person. And again, write one sentence describing these feelings. So I thought that it was interesting because I feel like when we think about all this research on empathy versus compassion, and there's so much... You know, there's the book Against Empathy by Paul Bloom, which discusses this idea that like compassion is better, as you mentioned also in the episode, compassion might be better for actually helping people because empathy has all these biases. In some cases, we might be more empathetic when we see the image of like one child who is in distress rather than hearing the statistics of like how bad it actually is. And there are thousands and thousands of people in distress. But I felt like with these prompts, it felt intuitive to me that it was way harder to do the compassion part i don't know if you felt that listening to that
0: yeah i wonder if it's something to do with bringing up this suffering and the experiences rather than i guess with the compassion part it's harder to know what we're kind of holding what are we what are we connecting to there as much if it's just warm warm feelings and caring for them i think it's easier to work out how to do that if does that make sense if there's something tied to that
1: yeah, I also feel like with the empathy, it's like feel what this person is feeling, share suffering and their experiences. If you're seeing someone go through something something negative, like someone losing $5, you've probably been there and you can be like, that sucks. I know how that feels. And they're in a negative state. So it's almost like maybe you're primed to be in a negative state. But then it feels like the compassion part of generating warmth, caring. You have to switch almost your mind from something negative happening to something positive happening and you having to take a really active role almost in trying to do something for the person. It's not just being there and feeling the emotions, but it's a step further in, okay, what can I do about this? And so in that way, I think it makes a lot of sense to me that the compassion aspect takes more from you Mm -hmm. even though i was surprised by it because when i would think about compassion versus empathy i would think compassion is more like this cold way of thinking about something without getting too involved and therefore without overextending yourself but really you have to understand what they're going through but then also think about what would be most effective for helping them so that seems really hard (laughs) and also with the
0: compassion it feels like someone doesn't have to be going through a hard time mm-hmm. or anything for us to feel compassion mm-hmm. towards them. I don't know if that's true, but it, for, for, anyway, from the prompt, it feels that's something we should be able to feel about anyone.
1: They don't have to be suffering mm-hmm. in order
0: us, for us to feel compassion.
1: Yeah, that's true. This research was interesting because they really did take apart, as Julian was saying, down to the definitions of what these things really are, because I think in this broad view, compassion has been painted as this good thing that we approach with like objective distance almost, and then we're able to actually make a difference by doing that. I feel like it should be easier and wouldn't come with that cost. But then when you actually break it down into like what actually is compassion, as Julian said, There's actually a lot more that goes into it, and you do have to understand what that person's going through to be able to effectively help them. So that does seem way harder and much harder than saying we should stop being empathetic because it's difficult and it's not doing the right thing. If you're having compassion, you have to do both. I never understood with people who are against
0: empathy. I feel like if you don't have that empathy, it's harder to be motivated to want to help someone. I don't know. I feel like by feeling and relating your experiences to someone or trying to understand how they feel, then you have that motivation to not want them to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. I
1: also think that when we think about the Paul Bloom Against Empathy book, a lot of that, as I remember it, we did do an episode on empathy (laughs) a long time ago, but a lot of it is about this idea of targeting one person versus targeting multiple people and societally and systemically, maybe empathy isn't as good as compassion because compassion is something that again is supposed to be less emotionally involved, but I feel like in this case, when it's thinking about compassion versus empathy for an individual case, mm-hmm. which is what Julian looked at, it seems like you need to have both, yeah. and that that idea of emotions clouding our judgment, if it's in an individual case. If the argument from Paul Bloom is that we're focusing too much on one person's sad story versus a thousand people's sad story, and we're more willing to give money to one suffering child rather than Seeing images or like hearing the statistics of thousands of suffering children, then that's true, but then at the same time, if it's about one person individually, then you do need to understand their emotions if you want to help them in a really really specific way that's personal to them. I'm sure there's research about this, but that empathy is needed for a compassionate response because how are you going to care for someone if you don't understand what they themselves need?
0: yeah, and I would even think of the example of. Caring for one child over a thousand, I still think that emotion and that empathy and that connection is what fuels why you would care for the thousand anyway. I don't know. I find it really hard to imagine making decisions and things without that, those feelings behind them. And I maybe that's very wrong and not the <laughs> just fueled by emotion. But I don't know, that's the way I think about things and make decisions and I Can't really imagine. So when I hear a sad story about someone in a difficult situation and then apply that to everyone in that situation, I can't imagine doing it without first connecting to that one story or understanding how that person would be or does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. The way that I've heard it discussed and the way in which it becomes something more nefarious is when there was one of the heights of the, the refugee crisis in Europe, mm-hmm. though that's still happening now. It was a really intense moment for that happening. And like, thousands of people were dying, trying to get to Europe on, on these boats. And then there was one image of a little boy, a two-year-old who had drowned. Once that image came out, there was a huge discussion of this as a problem, even though it hadn't actually become more of a problem. It was just that there was one image that made people care And people were still reading before that and after that about the news being like thousands of migrants are dying, thousands of children are dying. But without that one image, it made people not able to think that far. So I think there is a bias there that can be a problem. And I also remember during Hurricane Katrina, there was research that showed that when you showed like tons of images of houses being taken away and like these crazy images of the floods that there wasn't a lot of movement in terms of people calling in and donating. But then they showed an image of a dog (laughs) on a roof that looked sad. And then the amount of donations upped by a a crazy amount. So I think there are some biases there. And obviously that's not what we want. Ideally, you would want to hear that there are thousands of people dying and it doesn't take one image to tug at your heartstrings to get you there.
0: Yeah, but I feel like if that's... (laughs) I guess if, if that's why it's bad, but that's how we respond. I don't know how, how do we change that? That's how people do respond and connect to things. Yeah. So I guess if, I don't know how you change that within people. To so not... you're just
1: saying exploit it. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. I guess the idea is that if you're aware of that bias and you know that if you think about many of these crises that are happening all the time around the world, that if there's no face to it, you still know deep down that there's a face to it that you could imagine. Then maybe you're able to hear yourself like 2,000 people have died and then you're able to get yourself there without having to see basically like trauma porn, yeah. essentially. Um, I think that's that argument there. But I do think going back to Julian's work that this compassion versus empathy discussion, I think, is really different on that individual scale versus that bigger argument that's i think made more in paul bloom's book about more statistical thinking and how to address like broader problems but it feels like on the one-to-one scale that compassion needs empathy to yeah exist. and that's okay
0: so one of the things that came up when i was talking to julian was where does empathy and compassion come from and why would we have this so then do we see this in animals and is this something that that helps our survival and I looked into it, and yeah, we do see empathy and compassion in non human animals. One of the examples was there was a study at the University of Chicago done in rats. This was 2011, I think. So there's two rats in the cage, and one of the rats is kind of trapped in a tube so it can't move. And they measured to see when they're, the free rat, if they release the trapped rat. And the first Study was just that, and they always release a trap rat. But then you think, okay, well, they're just doing that because they want someone to hang out with, and they're just doing it for their own (laughs) self-interest, little rat friend. But then they have a condition where the free rat can release the trap rat, but not to with them, so they can release them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And the rat still, that's the first thing they do. Rather than explore the cage, they release the rat, so it can go into its other thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then they did another one where the rat could pick to release the other rat or eat chocolate. And the, the rat would eat some of the chocolate, but it could have kept it all to itself, but then it releases the rat, so the other rat can have some chocolate as
1: well. Oh, Yeah, so it's pretty pretty sweet. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I really think it's interesting when researchers think about what are the other things that it could be, because it's like, oh, maybe yeah. selfishly, you just want a rat friend. Yeah, It's <laughs> not that you actually are thinking about the other rat. I think it's cool that they have these different ways of thinking about these different mm-hmm. concepts and thinking, oh, maybe it's just th- that they're out for themselves and bored and want to hang out with someone. So that's mm-hmm. why they would release them. And then I remember when I was an undergrad, I took an animal cognition class. Oh, cool. And the most popular animal in this class was the elephant yeah. because <laughs> they're just amazing. Apparently I learned in that class. So a lot of the research that has been done in that space is from France Duval, who also does a lot of like ape research as well. But there's a lot of evidence that elephants are empathetic and can perspective take. So Mm -hmm. in terms of perspective taking with putting themselves in someone else's shoes, like that more cognitive aspect, they've done this rope pulling task with elephants where there's one condition where you can do it on your own, where an elephant can use their trunk to pull a snack towards them. But there's another way in which they can only do it when there's another elephant there. And they've done a study where they can show that they really work together to pull the resource and that they'll wait to start the task when they know that it requires a second elephant, but if they can see that it's just them, they'll just do it oh, by themselves. By themselves. Yeah. And it involves a lot of planning and figuring out what the other elephant's gonna do so that they can effectively cooperate. So okay. elephants can cooperate, and a exactly. lot of that has to do with being able to take the other elephant's perspective. Uh. But the other thing that I feel like elephants are so sweet and sad is that mm. they have a lot of complicated mourning rituals oh, as well. And <laughs> <laughs> When other elephants die, they kind of have these burials, and they also comfort each other. And when one elephant is in distress, other elephants will come to them and, like, kind of pet them with their trunks and stuff. Do they know
0: why they have a, like, mourning r- ritual?
1: One of the the ideas that people have that, I mean, I don't know this research super well, is that because they're pack animals and they, I think at least the females stay in packs for their whole lives. They develop really strong connections with each other. So when one of them dies, it changes the social order and it means a lot for them in terms of the social groups that they'll have. Yeah. If you have animals that are that social, it makes sense that you would have to deal with a lot of the structure of their environment namely someone dying like changing that structure i think it makes sense that most animals Have are that. empathetic yeah and i was
0: reading a study done at john hopkins recently i think a few years ago with dogs and empathy for humans mm. yeah. and they did show so it's, it's similar set up to the rat task but one person is a person and the other is their dog And when they were trapped, they were either humming or calling out in distress and they measured the dog's heart rate. And Mm -hmm. when the owner was in distress, they really do. Their heart rate goes up and they act really quickly to get the owner out. And they were saying because the dog's heart rate is going up, they are also that is actually empathy because they're feeling that distress Mm. for their owner. So now we'll go to another one of your studies. So this is your 2020 paper, and it looked at the stereotypes of compassion for Democrats and Republicans. Can you explain what this study was?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this was some research that was done at a particularly, I the politically, politically hot time, I should say. I don't know if that's the right word, but it was a <laughs> politically active time for the United States of America. And I had you know, arrived to the University of Iowa in 2014. And I sort of was around during the Iowa caucus over in 2016. And so leading up to that, my collaborators and I were actually looking at basically, would there be any differences in how Democrats or liberals and Republicans or conservatives, how they might report themselves as compassionate, and how they might see the average Democrat or liberal An average republican or conservative as compassionate as well and we wanted to sort of see if there was any differences in how people self-reported and how they might stereotype the average outgroup versus in-group member and seeing how those hold up to actual self-reports so we conducted three online studies and we conducted two field studies one was at the 2016 iowa caucuses over in iowa city iowa in different regions and then our lab actually moved to Penn State University that same year. So actually in November of 2016, we conducted some field research at voting sites over in Center County, Pennsylvania. So we had sort of two samples in that regard. And what we essentially we were looking to do is just kind of compare people's self-reports. So how compassionate do you think you are and how compassionate do you think you know the average Democrat, liberal is, conservative, Republican is? And we just compared across the two. And what we found is that overall people were not quite matching up with the self-reports of how compassionate these individuals thought they were. We found overall there was a stereotype the average Democrat or liberal is more compassionate than the average Republican or conservative, but that this was maybe more endorsed by the Democrat and liberals of our study samples. But in the more politically active samples, so the voters that we've collected data from in person using paper and pencil, We actually found that they were more likely to reserve compassionate stereotypes or say that their group was more compassionate than their uh, outgroup. So there was something to be said about these politically active individuals saying, my group is more compassionate than the outgroup, which we found a bit interesting given those were politically active members.
0: So did the Republicans also find themselves more compassionate? Did they believe they were more compassionate than the Democrats or it was just the Democrats that believed they were more compassionate than the Republicans?
2: Yeah. So overall, there was a stereotype from all our participants collapsed together that the Democrats thought, right. they thought the average Democrat was more compassionate. But in the politically active sites, I believe that that effect was reduced such that the Republican voters were actually saying the opposite. They were actually saying that their in-group was slightly more compassionate mm. than the Democrats. And, uh, you know, probably the most notable takeaway here is that this didn't match up with self-reports. There was actually less self-report group differences between the two such that those stereotypes were widened.
0: Yep. And what could be some consequences of not being able to judge the level of compassion within an out group or how you think your compassionate your group is? I think the
2: big one (laughs) that could happen is political gridlock. If you are looking at your, you know, whether it's a competitive group in any domain, but I think politics is very, very deep because it's rooted in values, beliefs, ideology, morals, right? There's a, there's a lot of right and wrong judgments in political ideology. If you think that your political outgroup is less compassionate than your political in-group, let alone yourself, there may be ways that you may think that their beliefs, their values, their ideology is not based in compassion, It's not based in morality. Uh, You know, it might be based in preferences. It might be based in something less moral in nature. So there are ways that I think this could sort of dampen or impede effective intergroup dialogue. And I realize that a lot of this stuff is very heated on very heated issues. So I I hope not to get in the middle of that because I, I do believe that there's a lot of important discussion there. But I do think as just a first pass, unfortunately, when you think that the other group is not basing a lot of their values in compassion or you think that they're less compassionate, I think that could be kind of hard to to get in the room with them.
0: Yeah, definitely. So some of your recent work has investigated the neural substrates of decisions to experience empathy. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about whatever you can speak about now, if you could share a bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. We're still kind of in process of preparing that research. But overall, the goals of that work was to go into sort of the differences in our ability to empathize and kind of tease that apart from our propensity or motivations to empathize. And in that work, we were particularly interested in two prominent groups that have been studied for what happens when damage to certain neural regions might impact and how that impacts social behavior, social emotional function, and things like that. And so these two Prominent groups that have been studied are individuals with lesions to the amygdala, which is, you know, deep subcortical region, often tied to the limbic system, and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is a region that's kind of sort of behind the eyes, sort of kind of around the frontal cortex region. But with lesions to these two regions, there's often been a lot of associations with issues of social-emotional function, issues of empathy, personality changes, and so on and so forth. Now, I'll talk more specifically about these two sort of Regions and how these individuals have been studied. So, uh, individuals with damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex have previously been shown to have issues with maintaining relationships, with experiencing personality changes. Probably one of the most prominent cases is Phineas Gage, who had that sort of train rod go right through their skull. And so, you know, there's been a lot of research done about how these individuals may not be able to make effective decisions just due to the nature of their injury, as well as being able to sort of pick up on their own sort of somatic. Uh, physiological sensations and use that for effective decision making which i think has also been tied to their social emotional function additionally these individuals have been shown to have decision-making tendencies that might resemble individuals with psychopathic tendencies so you know maybe more willing to do harm to one individual in order to save many individuals this is often seen in those classic trolley dilemmas uh, whether you would be comfortable and say that you have less hesitation to sacrifice one individual in order to save many Whereas neurotypical individuals would say that's actually an uncomfortable decision for them to make. Individuals with damage to this region might actually report less difficulty with that. So again, a lot of alterations in social-emotional function. And I believe that they've also been thought to have issues of empathy as well. When it comes to individuals who have suffered damage to the amygdala, a very prominent case of this has been studied. This is patient SM who has suffered her back disease, which has completely calcified her amygdala. This individual has been shown to have issues recognizing fear as well as experiencing fear in other individuals, so this ability to sort of perceive this emotion in another person, and additionally has presented as sort of fearless in context that we might normally experience fear in, such as approaching strangers on the side of the street and actually being threatened by them, but then being absolutely unshaken by this entire experience. So a lot of this has been tied to potential issues of empathy there as well. However, some recent evidence has come out with patient SM whereby she might be particularly altruistic due to the damage that she has sustained to her amygdala, where she has donated her clothes directly off her back towards strangers in order to sort of help them out. And so this may be something to be said about that damage to the amygdala may actually be making her less likely to sort of calibrate the costs of having Mm -hmm. sort of costly social interactions with other individuals. And maybe this is something to be said about her having less hesitations in approaching empathy that neurotypical individuals might have. So what we tried to do in this research was just restudy some of these individuals who have been studied over the course of numerous years at the University of Iowa while I was over there. And we studied individuals who had lesions to their ventromedial prefrontal cortex, their amygdala, brain damage comparison individuals who had sustained lesions to other regions outside of these two neural areas and healthy comparison individuals, just to see whether they would differ in their propensity of sort of wanting to empathize with other individuals or want to remain objectively detached from them. So using similar paradigms to what I've used in earlier work, and additionally see how they reported some sort of mental effort, aversiveness, and efficacy with empathy versus contrast decks. And preliminarily, what I will say is that one might expect that Individuals with VMPFC damage might sort of approach empathy less. Individuals with amygdala damage, sort of back and forth, whether they would approach empathy less or more. Uh, Again, due to these disruptions in these social-emotional neural regions that are often tied with that function. We actually found no differences. We found that these individuals actually didn't differ in how much they approached or avoided empathy compared to the brain damage comparison individuals or our healthy comparison individuals. So we think that there's something to be said there about how these individuals at least have a propensity for empathy, even though a lot of the prior work has shown that they may have ability-based deficits. So it's something that we're still exploring and writing up, but we think that's something, we think it's an important piece of sort of understanding the neural function of empathy, especially when it comes to that propensity-based component that may be relatively understudied.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. And so I guess that is kind of I suppose a complicated relationship, but a relationship between empathy and and fear. How fearless we, I don't know if it's just this case, but I don't know if there's a relationship between empathy and fear in general.
2: Yeah. So the empathy and the fearlessness that may be shown by someone, you know, patient SM, and I know that there's other sort of amygdala lesioned individuals who have been studied prayer prominently. I think with empathy or even just our interaction with another individual that might begin with empathy, I think that there's a lot of costs that may play out in our mind before we go into some sort of interaction with empathy, whether that's, you know, will this person harm me? Will this person exploit me? Does this person actually deserve the help that I'm about to give them or the attention I'm about to give them? And I think to some degree, this is part of motivated emotion regulation and motivated empathy frameworks. There may be ways that we think about those and weigh those more highly then the potential rewards such as, you know, social approval, gaining trust in another individual and, and otherwise. So what we were thinking about in the conceptualization of this project is that when the amygdala may be unfortunately damaged, there may be this altered calibration of these costs in ways mm-hmm. that Individuals with this damage actually have been shown to have more of an approach bias towards other individuals, you know, closing the distance with strangers and so on and so like other interesting paradigms. And so that might be part of where fear has a bit of an implication into maybe being a little bit more inclined to approach empathy. Now, mind you, I should qualify to say that we didn't find that individuals with amygdala lesions approached empathy all the time, mm-hmm. but they just that they didn't do it any differently yeah. than the other three comparison groups.
0: So now to some more of your recent work. So this was your work that looks at how people experience empathy.
2: Sure. Yeah. And this is sort of ongoing research. So I might talk a little broadly about what we're trying to kind of investigate there. But as I was doing a lot of this research on how people sort of prefer to approach or avoid whether it's empathy and the experiential component or even compassion and tease apart individual difference variation in that as well as contextual variation. When does that happen? When does that not happen? And the neural substrate work, I started to think about what does it feel like to be on the other side of that? So, what does it feel like as a person who is receiving empathy from another individual? How is that perceived? Is that desired? Is it the most effective thing that you think the other person should extend to you? Or do you want something else? And in particular, my first sort of desire to study this was in the context of social injustice. Uh, I was really interested in trying to figure out when people across numerous instances of social injustice, or when they experience it, would you in the recruitment of a potential ally, or even allies who just want to be an ally, because you know, with allyship, you have to be accepted as an ally, you can't just say you're an ally. Um, <laughs> you Is it the most effective thing for a observer who is not likely to experience the injustice that they're witnessing? Is it the most effective thing for them to extend empathy and convey that to another individual? Or are there other responses that may be more desired? And so broadly, I'm trying to explore that as well as explore how it feels to describe an instance where someone has experienced an event of social injustice broadly construed. But how does it feel to describe that to someone that may not match that template, may not be as likely to experience something in a one-to-one manner like you would and and so we got some preliminary studies looking at that and we have some follow-up studies that are kind of planned so it's it's a little it's some findings that we're still kind of teasing apart and we're also trying to look at what response people might desire from the other person would they desire more of an sort of an empathic response or other response that might be more likely to elicit sort of social change? Or is there other responses that might allow that person to feel like I want to go to that person in future for assistance? So that's broadly sort of what we're looking at in that set of projects.
0: And do you think that if people have empathy towards you, that can sometimes feel maybe even condescending or something? And could there be some element of that if someone, you know, kind of, oh, I feel sorry for them and those kinds of things.
2: Yeah. And I think that there's some work on this already. I don't want to misquote, but I do know that some researchers have done work on, you know, the ability to empathize or the ability to perspective take, depending on the domain that implies to some degree a power difference. And I think it's very difficult. It might even feel a little strange to empathize up the sort of power structure, whatever that might feel. So I I do think that there can be a condescending approach there if the person's not expecting it. So if you were to look at someone, assume they're suffering and try to empathize with them and maybe try to help them out and they're not expecting it and they don't want it, that could be difficult, especially if the person who is trying to do this may not be the person that the other individual wants to help them. So mm. I think that there's a lot of debate and discussion there because there's there's ways that I think people can be good-natured and and willed in how they're trying to approach a situation. But I do think that part of what I'm trying to tease apart a little bit is in generating that crosstalk, people do have to share stories. They do have to share how this is actually affecting them. But that in and of itself can be burdensome. Yeah. And especially if the other person is not validating, is asking a lot of questions, um, is questioning some of the nature of that story, uh, that can be a very difficult crosstalk interaction. So I think the condescension can come in multiple domains. And I don't think it's, it may not be all intentional, but unfortunately, it can have yeah. a lot of cost to the person that's be empathized, so to say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to think of the balance between, Understanding where people are coming from, where you 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 know, there's no possible way for you to ever actually relate to that experience, but also trying to understand how they feel. It's a very, yeah, how the best way to do that, yeah, and then how we can learn more about people's experiences without it taking a, a toll on them because sharing, you know, things that happen for people that are traumatic it's, yeah, in itself, as you said, a very difficult thing.
2: Yeah, and it does get difficult when I think you know. As people, I think, are trying to be well-intentioned and get into these conversations in a way that's hopefully healthy, people almost to some degree have to prepare for them. They have to Mm -hmm. find a way to be comfortable with the other person making a mistake and maybe doing something that may not be the most you know, socially skilled in the situation, for lack of a better word or, or phrase. So that is hard, though, in nature, too, because the person who has experienced the injustice, I think to some degree, they need to be helped, protected, or also respected, right? So it's like one we want people feel the need to sort of protect and help these folks and alleviate their suffering, but you also have to respect them at the same time. You know, we can think about, you know, helping literature and like dependency oriented versus autonomy oriented helping. And if you're doing it in a way that's more dependency oriented, in order to keep that person sort of relegated to their status and not allow them to advance, that's not effective. Yeah. People may think that's effective, but it's not. It, you know, it is just my opinion. Probably more literature has shown that too. But at the same time, the autonomy-oriented helping is the one that can actually provide a lot more agency towards that individual to get helped in the way that they like to be helped, as well as advancing their status. So I think that part of it, coming into a situation with that mindset, I think is very effective. And I think that could also allow for that interaction to be more effective.
1: So... One of the things that I think is really cool about Julian's work and the work in his graduate school lab, so Daryl Cameron's lab, is that they do this research that I think in the empathy space was really novel in that a lot of our research is about, especially in the intergroup space, is about how do we get people to empathize more. And there's a lot of research also showing that empathy is kind of, and maybe we think that empathy is kind of an automatic response. So you can't help but empathize Mm -hmm. with certain groups and with someone who's in pain. And I think a lot of people who are quote unquote empaths, (laughs) but that some people really feel like they can't help but empathize with others. There's another line of research from UCL and Princeton where they showed that there were certain groups specifically in the so-called low warmth and low competence a lot of the times it's unhoused people people have substance abuse issues where there were parts of the brain that related to perspective taking and empathy that were down regulated when people were seeing like an unhoused person on the street and that kind of explained this idea of why people cross the road to avoid seeing that person because they're kind of turning off their empathy also People, so it's not people who are unhoused and
0: things who have lower empathy. No, that we are more likely to, yeah, yeah, Yeah. that.
1: And so there was research that showed that we were less likely to empathize with people who are so-called low competence and low warmth. And that then neurally, this was related to less activity in regions of the brain, like the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex Mm -hmm. and the temporal parietal junction that are related to empathizing and perspective taking. And I feel like a lot of this research at least for me before I came across work from Gerald Cameron's lab and Julian was like empathy is automatic. And then sometimes what happens is if the situation is almost too much for mm-hmm. us to deal with, or there's just certain targets for which we turn it off. But I think what's interesting about their work is that it's really like actually empathy is effortful, maybe all the time. Yeah. And so if we're able to avoid that situation in general, even if it's not someone who is low warmth and low competence we still might be avoiding that situation. And I think another interesting layer to this is this question of whether when someone is not empathizing, is it that they don't want to empathize or they don't have the motivation to do it? Or it's also been called the propensity to empathize or do they completely lack the ability to empathize? And one cool study looked at uh, how this worked in psychopaths versus autistic people. Mm -hmm. So both of those groups tend to have these social impairments. And for psychopaths, I think often we think they just are incapable of empathize. They're incapable of empathy and feeling the same emotions as someone else. And so in a lot of these tasks, there's a really famous task. That, granted, is problematic, but it's called the reading the mind in the eyes task. You just see a strip of someone's eyes. And the reason, digression, the reason (laughs) it's problematic is because a lot of the, like, little strips of images of women's eyes The different emotions are like cheerful, (laughs) desire, so like very sexualized um, emotions that women can have. And there's no like desire for any of the men images. So that's why it's kind of problematic, but it's still used currently to look at whether people are able to empathize and read someone's emotions just from their eyes without any other contextual clues. And so in those types of tasks, normally people who are high on psychopathy scales don't really do well at those types of tasks. Mm Neither do people who are autistic. And so it was unclear what was going on there. But in this one study, they had a condition where instead of it being like, can you do this? They incentivized people to do it properly or to try their best, namely by giving them rewards. So monetary rewards, the more accurate they would be, the more money they would get. And so they found that when they did that, the psychopaths were pretty much just as good as anyone else. So they're completely capable of doing it. It's just that they don't feel the need to. Then with people who are autistic, those effects didn't replicate. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a difference between ability versus propensity and motivation. So I think that's a cool finding about empathy. And then also Julian talked about this research on the Democrats, Republicans, but Also, this research on intergroup situations and this idea of like, do we want people to empathize with us at all? And one of the things that he was saying was that it's kind of weird to empathize or have compassion for a group that's higher status Mm -hmm. than you. Um, But I think that's also this question of like empathy versus compassion, where actually a lot of research shows that people who are lower social class or lower SES or economic status, they're much better at empathizing than people who are high social class. There was a study from 2010 where they took people who had graduated high school versus people who had graduated college. Mm -hmm. And the people who didn't have a college degree were better at these looking in the eyes tasks than people who had college degrees. So there's that objective socioeconomic status. But then also if they primed people to think that they were lower status, so priming people to think about the fact that you're lower in the hierarchy versus higher in the hierarchy, that made people better and worse also at empathizing. oh depending on where you thought you were yeah just by being primed with it
0: and in this study was it empathizing about all different scenarios because sometimes i wonder if you're in that different group you've maybe just had more difficult experiences throughout your life so when you go to empathize it you have like, unfortunately a whole group of them you can pick from like, yeah i remember how that felt i remember how that felt and it's and it's that that's enabling the empathy or maybe if you've just had more difficult situations in life you can empathize with all different difficult situations because you've just had exposure to more hard times Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i think that's part of it i think that that seemed like it could be one of the factors with especially the high school versus college degree study but i think the fact that you can move the needle on how much people are empathizing if you just prime them to think like you're higher versus lower status and i think that leads me to think that it's more about survival because it's about if you are in a space where you have someone who has power over you, who's higher in the hierarchy and they have control over what happens to you, then it's really in your best interest to to be able to think like, okay, this is what this person is thinking. Whereas if it's in a situation where you think that no one has any power over you and that all the people around you don't really have that say in what happens in your life, then it's not, it doesn't really matter. So, and again, with the research from Julian's lab showing that, It's effortful. Why would you want to engage in something effortful if you don't need to? That's really funny because when I was was talking
0: to Julian and thinking about all this, I was like, I really hope it doesn't mean that empathy and compassion are just for survival and it's (laughs) it's just because, and we don't just have them because we're innately good and caring. But I think it's like. This is
1: very Beth versus Ava's, <laughs> like, outlooks. You're like, yeah, empathy is just because we're all fundamentally good. We all have all to be good people. We just want to get No. <laughs> I mean, I think it can be both. I think if we think of the idea that, you know, we're, we're in a social world, like, it's in your best interest to genuinely care about other people because it's in everyone's best interest to have people who genuinely care about them. Yeah. Just from love, right? <laughs> well, from love but also <laughs> survival. Love and survival. I think it's okay to say that something like love evolved from needing to survive. Yeah, that's okay. It doesn't make it any it less make it-
0: What is the new stuff you're working on and is there anything exciting you'd like to share?
2: Yeah, so uh, sort of newer stuff that I'm working on, and this is a lot of my research now currently in my postdoc position at UC Berkeley with Robert Levinson. So I'm starting to get involved in a sort of different domain and that is sort of understanding the experiences of informal familial caregivers of their loved ones who have been diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease you know, one of the most prominent uh, neurodegenerative diseases is Alzheimer's disease. It's very, you know, prevalent. the The numbers are rapidly increasing. Numerous, numerous families are investing hours into informal caregiving, and I think this is becoming an unfortunate emerging health crisis that's already here. And one of the things that folk working in this domain has challenged me is, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on the, the effectiveness of. Processes like empathy and compassion for other individuals, how it may lead to pro-social behavior. But this is a unique area where these processes may unfortunately have a lot of inherent costs to it just due to the extension of them often tied to the mental health issues of caregivers, especially when their loved one may experience sort of issues with whether it's cognitive ability, physical abilities, language abilities, and emotional or behavioral issues. This is actually a much more troubling process. And so I've been trying to understand sort of the limits of some of my prior work with this domain and trying to figure out, you know, when is the most effective application of these processes within interpersonal interactions with a caregiver and their care recipient. And additionally, I'm sort of invested in some work trying to look at how caregivers move on after their caregiving role is over. So I'm doing multiple layers of research in this domain, trying to figure out how do we alleviate the caregiver's burden, strain, depression and anxiety propensities or, or susceptibilities? And how do we effectively allow them to engage with their care recipient in a way that they hopefully don't lose that connection in ways that might cost them long term? So a lot of different questions to be addressed in that domain. And I think it's it, it needs a lot of attention.
0: Yeah. And just, I don't know if you can speak to this or if you have any opinions on this, but do we think that if you have a relative or loved one with Alzheimer's, we should try and use less of our empathy and compassion skills in those scenarios?
2: You know, that's a very interesting question. And I will say I have a couple of quick kind of thoughts about it. So the first one is, I think, as a first pass, and this even comes to, you know, when we talk about formal healthcare with doctors, nurses, physicians, therapists, like the first response might be, it's quick and easy to say, yes, you may not want to have as much empathy Mm -hmm. and compassion right away. to the nature of the heightened distress and sort of difficulties and troubles that your care recipient would have, as well as the extension of your physical and emotional labor in order to help them out. The other part of it is I think a lot of research has shown that with increasing the psychoeducation on the caregiver to understand what the neurodegenerative disease does to the care recipient, their loved one, and having that increasing level of understanding of how it's affecting them and how it's affecting their ability to function. That can actually potentially allow these extensions to be a lot safer or at least a less costly because you now understand what's happening. You understand how the disease may unfortunately be progressing in ways that might allow you to more effectively interact with the care recipient. I will say that some research that we're also doing is finding effective interventions to alleviate the caregiver's worry, anxiety, and concerns. So, you know, we're doing some research with technological interventions to try to see if we can alleviate the overall anxiety and worry that caregivers have about the sort of whereabouts of their care recipient, you know, because unfortunately, wandering, Mm -hmm. sleeplessness and nighttime disturbances are a big part of informal caregiving. So can that actually alleviate that part of the process that might be burdening the caregiver in ways that there may be mental health and other forms of their sleep function and, and otherwise might actually be improved. So I think there's a number of different ways that Extensions of empathy and compassion can be effective, but I think there's a number of different factors that have to be addressed in order for that to happen.
1: Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Mada Souza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on MindsMatterPodcast.com. <laughs>